Causing the Effect, a podcast focused on the exploration of your mind, body, and spirit. I'm May and Nathan Jones. How are you, brother? What's going on? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, everybody, uh, I'll let Nate Nate uh, explain. Is it okay to call you Nate? You go by Nate or Nathan? Yeah, just Nate. Yeah, Nate. my friend. Cool. Nate. Uh, author, historian, uh, war veteran. I'm gonna let you give your rundown as we go. But um, <laughs> tell tell me where we're talking. We've been talking about truth for the last five ten minutes here, and I, I was so captivated by. It, I figured let's just turn it on. But what what Nate was saying was he thinks. He's hitting on something in academia that most people aren't. And I was curious what that was precisely because I'm, you know, I went to college. I got a couple degrees. I got an MBA and all this stuff. But from a teaching perspective, um, what, what, what does that look like? Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a really good. um, That's a, that's a really good reshift of the conversation we were just having. So a lot of people don't know this, but the history discipline as a field um spawned out of sociology mm -hmm. right so sociology is actually older than history is as an academic discipline so the first historians were by and large sociologists now um and so you know the first people that worked in this field were by nature interdisciplinarians at least sure. they might have been multidisciplinarians um you know, somewhere along the way, academia, I think, to its, um, you know, to its detriment has just become siloed in these academic disciplines, right? And so what I try to do is, like, I had this research question, and I was just noticing a phenomenon that was occurring. And I, I couldn't get my mind off of the fact that there just had to be something to it. If I was just seeing the same phenomenon and it. so um I, I work as the director of the general pat museum at fort knox right so um i started there as just a curator and one of the things that i've always tried to do is whatever whatever you're working on let's do our absolute best to like find some evidence something that backs up what it is we're trying to say right and um, you know, so I'm I'm sort of a neo-empiricist, right? So I'll get to the 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 neo in, in a minute, but so I'm I'm somewhat of an empiricist in that like I'm kind of driven by data and facts, right? And such as it is, but I was observing this phenomenon of all of these old timers, right? These old army vets from World War II coming into the Pat Museum, and it was like most of them were like on their last pilgrimage and they just like wanted to go see the stuff that the guy they consider their hero, you know, war during World War II. And they were just making these personal connections to it and everything. I'm like, well, this is like really, really fascinating. Right. So I'm kind of like starting at this from a sociological versus, um, uh, like historical perspective, right? So, you know, and then I reminded myself, I'm like, well, this is how a lot of research questions began, 
you know, so I, I see this thing that's occurring. Is there a historical basis for this? And so I just started going down that rabbit hole, um, you know, but as an empiricist, you know, definitionally, I have to believe in the concept of truth, right? Because otherwise, what it is, my, what am I doing here? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Sure. So that kind of brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. So, yeah, and when people think, yeah, and when I, because I, I, a lot of your research, if I understand right, you're you're really focusing on both the qualitative sociological piece of it as well as the history research method. And like from a person outside, I've watched the movies, I, I've read some patent books, but like when you say that qualitative analysis and history, how does your work like that sounds like a like two different ends of the spectrum how do you end right. up connecting both of those and how how much data is there to pile through because i can just imagine it's it's insane yeah and the, the 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 amount of literature that you have to troll through to come to these conclusions is daunting but it, it's what makes academics like me our, our work so slow is because you know we're not trying to master just one silo of academic discipline right so in my work i'm pulling on social psychologists and evolutionary biologists and you know that's why i find podcasts like you are so fascinating because in joe rogan's is because you're just you know you're pulling from just a whole lot of people you just cast a white net you're like you know what i started to notice that this hero veneration phenomenon um has evidence cross disciplines Right. And then I, so I started going down each one of those little rabbit holes. And I'm like, I, I don't understand how you can't. I, I don't understand how someone could deny the fact that heroes have and do continue to play an important role in the human psyche and consciousness and societally, you know, and that is not something I'm like, and because it's so ubiquitous this idea you can't it it's probably not intelligent or prudent to cavalierly cast that idea aside right and so when i was finished i was putting the finishing touches on my dissertation i think on 2020 i was like this was like right in the middle of the um the george floyd murder right and you know there become widespread iconoclastic behaviors across the country right and you know here i am a person who tries to like study and understand like heroes and why they're important in society why we have them etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so like that was like a real challenge for me to finish to finish that that document but um you know the thing is is that I, what I was interested the, the research question that I have is, um, well, first of all, I study the history of memory, right? And so, you know, that, that, that necessitates an understanding of, you know, Patton and his biography and what he did during the wars that he fought in, and da, 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 you know, the kind of general military history of it all, right? But it also necessitates a, an understanding of how narratives shift over time and why right and so I, what i do is i studied the way things were remembered to have happened versus how they actually happened right 
And so if you want to understand how memories have changed and for what reasons they changed over time, you need to learn some sociological research methods because it's going to bring you up to today because patents still ubiquitous. You know, and I like I wanted to know what it what 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 was it about this guy that brought these people in from all over the world? I mean, there were like French soldiers coming in, you know, and um, you know, like I, I wanted what I wanted to know why why a, a single person could, could become such a national hero, what his national significance was. And how that changed over time to meet the needs of the current zeitgeist of the moment, right? So, um, because the way we remember patent today is not the way people in 1955 remembered patent, right? So, like, this doesn't all just occur in, you know, it doesn't, it, it changes. And it changes, you know, if there is change... You know, a, a, an object in motion will stay in motion until acted upon by an outside object, right? It's like you can't move if something doesn't move you. So if something changes, something changed it. So I wanted to discover what it was, were those things that caused this change in how we perceive our national heroes, right, over the course of time. Wow. That's really boring and wonky. It is. Uh, Nate, everything I, I like, listen, I'm like, I have goosebumps. Is everything you're talking about is just like enamoring to me because we're talking about perception. We're talking about you're kind of going back in time and dropping yourself the history of memory. That's such an, an interesting concept to me. So fuck boring. This is this is let's get into this. So <laughs> I, right. I, I know the high level of, you know, why, what of how. Or, or no, yeah. more. Uh, let's say why things uh, we we don't remember things the right way. You seem to be understanding, or at least you know, wrapping your head around the why. What are some of the reasons? And you just, you can use whatever examples you want, patent if you like. Uh, why is it that the memories of history change? Well, we'll use patent because that's what I'm most familiar with. So, um, patent was already being described as a legend before he was dead. Right. So newspapers reporting on him as like a living legend. Right. Now, you have to remember that in 1940, early 1941, before December 7th, um, the United States was like ranked 19th in the world in like in military power ranks. Like the state of the U.S. military was. Um, it was bollocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and so. And we ranked behind Portugal, right? And so, well, I mean, what was like what was occurring in in Europe in 1939, 1940? I'm like Hitler was taking over Czechoslovakia and Norway, and you know he's in France, and you know we're sitting back over here going, "Holy crap, <laughs> we've got a military that ranks behind Portugal right now," um, and we remember what Germany did like with the Zimmerman telegram and the last war that we fought against Germany. So it's like, mm, we might need to start getting ready for something. Right. So, you know, we created um, before, before we started the, the uh, war, we had these maneuvers, these large scale tactical and strategic maneuvers down in the South American South. And the most famous of them were the Louisiana maneuvers of, 
41, the Carolina maneuvers and the uh, Tennessee maneuvers, right? So these were like core and army level massive mobilizations. And they're just fighting war games down here all over the South, right? And everybody's in the country is really still kind of freaking out, right? Now, there is still an isolationist segment of the population. So the kind of isolation, like there was no general 100% consensus in early 1941 that the U.S. should be in World War II. It was kind of 50-50, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we were attacked at Pearl Harbor that everyone decided to jump on board, right? And so... um, Anyway, um, the maneuvers were exposing a lot of weaknesses <laughs> that we had. Like soldiers were training with, like pretending that broom handles were rifles and they didn't have ammunition to fire. We didn't have proper equipment. I mean, it was so bad they didn't even have proper uniforms for them to wear. So they issued them these like blue denim uniforms you know that looked like prison inmate type stuff and they're down in like louisiana wearing jean jacket and jean pants you know in the summer not cool that's crazy Uh, but anyway you know so america was nervous we we had some anxiety issues the Mm. whole society and out of nowhere comes this freaking swashbuckling, pistol-carrying, revolver, cowboy-looking dude, right? And he's just kicking everyone's ass, right? And so the media picks up on it and was like, oh, dude, this guy might be able to be a bit of sunshine, you know? And so they started writing articles about him, and it just started escalating throughout the war, so what what I argue is we created the hero that Patton became, right? It's like we created him first in our minds. <laughs> and so because Americans needed a hero at that moment, right? And I'm like, there wasn't anything particularly spectacular about him on an individual level other than the fact that he was just driven to succeed and would not accept failure for any reason at all. Um, uh, he was harder on himself than anyone that was ever was on him. Um, but, um, you know, that was the only difference and we needed a hero. He was there. He was colorful. He cursed like a sailor. He wore funny uniforms and, you know, the media painted this big time picture of him. Right. Well, you know, just like a good example of how that changed over time is like during the 1960s, you know, there's anti-war sentiment going on, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in the in the 1950s, you see a an increase in the in the uh, publishing of books about Patton, right? But in the 60s, you see kind of like a tailor off, I think, if memory serves me correctly on the data. Um, but in the 70s, it starts to increase again. And I wondered why there was that dip. And I'm like, well, I mean, it might be attributable partly to the anti-war sentiment and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was like, mm, that, that was a, it was more of a subcurrent, right? Like that was a, like everybody thinks that the 60s was nothing but a whole bunch of hippies running around. And like, no, 
most people that was like in san francisco nowhere else sort of you know like it wasn't that widespread um so but anyway you know in the the 70s in the because the movie patent was was made i think it was 1970 right yep something like that um you know we were reeling from what we'd experienced in vietnam we're still reeling for what we were experiencing in Vietnam, mm. right? And so America's, again, needed something to remind themselves of when we fought the good war, you know, when we were the good guys, when we didn't lose, you know, and the bad lines were drawn clearly. These are the bad guys, we're the good guys, you know, and they needed to remind themselves of American exceptionalism and all the things that, you know, I still think have some merit. But um, he was used again as a reminder for that, you know. And so just over the course of time, it's generally, it's like whatever's happening, whatever the current events are, people tend to reinterpret their heroes in, in light of what's going on currently because that's the way the average person approaches and uses history. Academics use history in an entirely different way. Right. Most individuals look at the past from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Right. And historians are trained to look at the past from the outside in. Right. So we're trying to use individual examples to generalize what it was like broad scale. You know, currently what we the way we use history is I'm me. How do I fit into this world? Right. Where do I come from? Who are, who's my family? And so like identity gets wrapped up in a whole lot of it. Um, and that's understandable because that's just kind of a naturally occurring human phenomenon. Right. I mean, sure. People can't be blamed for that, but it, it is kind of is what it is. Sorry, I rambled there for a second. No, that that no, this is all all beautiful stuff. Now, taking that to today. Yeah. Um, has the view of Patton changed as much as the as the height when he was a hero? And how do you think technology and all, you know, this is a different time nowadays. How has that affected the way that we view history from a, you know, from a, a, a high level perspective? Right. So from the 30,000 foot view, um, what I see is the number of products i'll just say products because there is a commodification element of the patent hero Mm -hmm. narrative right because in the 80s they started making documentaries and video games Mm -hmm. board (laughs) games and bobbleheads and gi joes and it was like the the amount of material culture that was dedicated to patent just blew up in the 80s right i mean this is also during that decent economic times in the 80s so um there's a direct correlation there no problem. You know, that's beside the point. Sure. Um, you know, so there is that. Um, I'm sorry, I lost track of the question. What was the no, question? no, just, just from a, uh, a perspective of today, looking oh. back at history, how how is, you know, from a high level? Yeah, know. yeah. So, um, you know, the, there was this commodification element. And so, you know, I was like looking at the upward trend of patents popularity. Right. That's basically what I was looking at is, you know, this is an incline. So all but what I see going on today 
um, from a sociological perspective is, you know, the, the, the destruction of statues that you wouldn't think would have been up for debate, you know, like statues of Frederick Douglass taken down like Frederick Douglass. You know, it's like, if we can't consider Frederick Douglass a national hero, then we're we're doomed. (laughs) Right. You know, if we can't forgive the sins of our fathers, we're doomed. Um, You know, let's say Frederick Douglass wasn't a perfect man. I understand that. Neither was Martin Luther King. We're coming up on Martin Luther King Day, but neither was anybody else, right? We all, people all have their faults. And statues were not erected initially to commemorate the bad things they did. Exactly. (laughs) Like they were always built to commemorate the things that the people who put those statues up um, felt was virtuous and one they wanted to replicate. Right, because they place it high in a you know higher level of a hierarchy of value. So, you know what I'm fearful of today is like who's next? You know, if they're coming after Frederick Douglass and they've come after the iconoclasts, have come after Abraham Lincoln, they've come after George Washington. George Washington like, you know, as a person who's interested in the history of memory of a single individual, mostly. You know, you're kind of like, well, when are they coming after the George Pattons? You know, and it's like, and if if we keep going down this road and we are incapable of forgiving each other's faults, as repentant as we might be about those faults, then we'll be a species without heroes. I'm like, that's untenable. Because what I see from the evolutionary biology is <laughs> this idea that heroes have always played such a huge role in in our species evolution, right? I mean, this is what Jung talks about. This is the subconscious. Yeah. This is, you know, you know, just on a psychoanalytical perspective, you know, we've de- our, our brains have developed and manifest these these concepts um, because they're kind of low resolutions of what it took for us to evolve to the point where we are right so like take the hero narrative for instance right john campbell's or sorry joseph campbell's archetype you know um archetypical hero's journey monomyth right take that one you know it's easy to understand why that that story arc is such an important part of our societies and us as individuals um because look how much our species struggled over time. It is the story of coming from nothing, right? You species develops consciousness somehow. And, mm-hmm. you know, we evolve and move and blah, blah, blah. We trials and tribulations along the way. We learn to stand up right and walk because the lions were eating us or whatever, you know, like if you don't think that's a struggle, you've had a better life than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's like I, I see these kind of archetypes, as Carl Jung described them, as just kind of a means in which we've told these stories over and over to make sense of them. They're low-resolution, distilled, symbolic messages about who we are and the things that we need to remember, right? We embed those, we encode that as meaning in the stories that we tell, and 
um, you know, and it's, I think that we take for granted the things that the thing that we as historians have forgotten is that those stories, those archetypes are embedded over and repeated over and over across generations for a reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I suspect that reason might be if you don't remember these things that we've learned along the way as a species, it could be catastrophic for you. Right. Otherwise, why would our species, if you subscribe to, you know, the evolutionary theory, then like, why would our species forget the things that allow us to forget the things that got us to that point? Doesn't make sense. Right. So for me, it's like stories are the same thing. Right. Like we need to remember these things for some reason, because we always have. Right. Yeah, and you're look. You're. I love that you're looking at all of this from a, from a not only not only a cultural standpoint, but from like a, a homo sapien standpoint. Like the the hero's journey is embedded in in us. When you go, yeah. for me, when I got when I started watching this, it's just you know I'm a big Lord of the Rings guy and all this. I, mm-hmm. Oh, it's easy to yeah. slap that on. You know, Luke, Obi Wan's the mentors, right. and I go through the trials and I get the arm chopped off. Oh, every start, great saga is a hero. Yeah, hero. all, all I mean, of it. And you know, Jesus I mean, Christ. It's just, I mean, literally, Jesus Christ is a hero story narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's all the same. It's all in the same vein. It's yeah. why it resonates with so many people. You know, because we know fundamentally it to be true we can accept this as an axiom right and what i've tried to demonstrate with my research is hey it's not just me noticing this from a historical pers- perspective it's me also noticing across the board like everybody yeah. seems to kind of agree with what i'm saying here so i'm like hey guys you know it's like maybe we shouldn't be running around here and Roger douglas statues down i'm just saying maybe we should at least think about this talk about it or something you know um and so that's where my kind of sense of urgency comes from um but you know at the end of the day i'm just trying to uh, i'm just trying to make sense of everything like everybody else is you know <laughs> and that that's what scares me is just, there's just um not your generation i'm 32 and i would say I'm, i was in the cusp of that half you know half growing yeah. up without tech and then you're in it but the generation underneath me and just some people it's it's this lack of wanting to look at how you said the objective truth before we were talking and and taking responsibility being being able to bear a burden of what uh, what does a responsible adult look like in today's day and age and i do think the hero's journey is a part of that and the first step of that's the call to adventure no adventure call to whatever that your calling may be and being willing to go through the challenges and temptations and really hitting the abyss Right, have yeah, your but, transformation and atonement, and and to have that full come around is what's yeah. Me. Think think about it this way, right? Like, all right, we we come from a, a culture and society that's uh, heavily influenced by the Judeo Christian perspective, sure. right? It's undeniable. Um, so, you know, when I was talking about why our stories repeated over time, because oral tradition started before written tradition, mm-hmm. right? And so all most of the first story, well, the very first story we have written documentation of was an oral tradition. Yes. It was just written down. That's the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? So mm-hmm. um, like it stands to reason to me that most of our other earlier documents would be the same thing. So you had an oral tradition. They tell these stories to each other over and over and over. Then we develop writing. Right. Well, modern Homo sapiens are about 50,000 to 100,000 years old. 
right? Um, we've only been like the ability to write widely 500 years generously, you know, it's like the dissemination of information via the written word is that's yesterday compared to, you know, how long it took us to get to this point. And so we had to pass on this wisdom somehow. Otherwise, our species wouldn't be here. <laughs> we would have died, mm-hmm. all of us, mm-hmm. right? There would be no homo sapiens. Um, and so that's how I reason that the oral tradition is a good foundation, okay? So take take the Christian perspective, just because I use that as an example, right? The main protagonist in the Christian religion, of course, is Jesus, right? And what, do you recall, I don't know if, if you've, how religious you are or, or whatever. It, I grew a, up Catholic my whole life. Yeah, so so, I'm, I'm well, anyway, Jesus once described himself as the way, the truth, and the light, right? It's like, why, for me, it's like, I, I don't take those three lightly. Yeah, of all the words that you could have used, and this is important enough for these people to have repeated this story over and over and then write it down as documentation, I don't believe in coincidences, <laughs> right? So, like, why were these three words important to those people at the time, right? So, like, truth in the Christian tradition is incredibly important, right? You know, it's incredibly important in the Hindu tradition and the Taoist tradition. And, you know, it's like, so... Buddhism I mean, as well. Buddhism. So, you know... Truth is always held paramount. It's it's prime. It's it's the most important thing that you can do, right? Well, there's there's in the Christian tradition, there's this notion that you can tr- speak things into existence, right? Well, if you're created to the image of God and God spoke the truth, because for something to exist, there has to be something opposite it, right? Um, that's kind of a deeper philosophical. <laughs> discussion but you know th- if there's something if there's something called truth there has to be something opposite that right and this is why i think that the Taoists get it right with the yin and yang it's it's like you know there's truth and then there's the not truth right and the place where we should always try to find ourselves is on the edge of on the edge of truth and untruth trying to learn new things but not forgetting the things that we've learned along the way. Mm. Right. And so I think that's why history is important, you know, um, because we, as a species, our survival depends upon the fact that we don't forget the things that we've learned along the way to get us here. So anyway, the good and the bad. And that it's, uh, I'm on a journey this this year of Carl Jung with integrating the shadow, and this yeah. is all the stuff yeah. that, yeah, that yeah. he talks about. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. you have to be able to to the middle way. You can go Buddhism, middle way. This is all the yeah. same. Like this is exactly what you're talking yeah. about from a high level. It's all getting us to the same point. Right. Of you have to be able to look at the good, but understand like how you said that black implies white, the yin implies yeah. the yang. Well, Everything I mean, if- has a counterbalance. That's just the way. It works. Yeah, and if and if you're and if you're a person who needs to define what God is, I'm like that's as good as definition as any truth. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? You know, I fear not telling the truth more than I fear anything, <laughs> right? Because I know how crummy it makes me feel. 
mm-hmm. when I don't tell the truth. Right. And so, you know, um, you know, some people say fear God, don't fear man. I'm like, well, you know, that's all relative. <laughs> some people have different gods, but for me, it's like, and it, and it adds up if the son of God saying I'm the truth, you know? So anyway, um, so that, that's how like I can make sense of, you know, where our society is just kind of on a level today. I know, I still know all of the influences that have gotten us here and it's, takes a lot of time to understand all that, but I, you know, um, and, um, but anyway, yeah, it's an interesting thing. And there's not a whole lot of us who kind of focus in on, on this. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, this, this first book I'm going to have coming out, excuse me. Um, hopefully this year, I was really surprised and taken aback by how well it was received um by, by the peer reviewers especially for my first attempt at a full book manuscript right and there was a lot of things that i had included in it that i was kind of like concerned about but you know because i understand the state of academia today but um they they, they were very receptive to what, to what i had to say and i was like you know what maybe it's Maybe the case that I can make is just so insurmountable that, I mean, you, it's, it's undeniable, you know, um, and even the naysayers have to include it in the conversation, at least. Yeah. So oh, yeah. well, know, what is it about? I, What's the book about, Nate? So it's about Patton. Um, it's about the history of the memory of Patton. So all the things that I kind of talked about here, oh, cool. I spelled out in a lot of detail um, in the book. Um, I talk about Patton's influence on the army. Um, because that's very distinct. Um, and, um, you know, kind of bring it all the way up to today. So I start about, I, I start like right before World War II. And um, I discuss the evolution of the memory of Patton over time. Who were the actors? What were the motivations? Um, what had changed in society? how people felt about him. Um, like one of the, one of my favorite parts of doing the research was, is I, <laughs> I went to library of Congress and, and uh, read all of his fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That must've like, been awesome. Yeah. Who has, what general has fan mail? <laughs> yeah. Like name me a general today who has fan mail. Yeah, you know, even yeah. doing the, uh, like the research to when you were coming on, like even the, uh, like, I'm not a historical guy by any means, but I've, I've dabbled and it's like, you have this distinctive image of this man with his ivory gripped engraved yeah. silver plated cult action single army 45. I'm like, yo, this dude's the man. Like it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. It's pretty dope. Right. So, and, <laughs> but that's the thing is like, that was all facade, you know, I mean, what was really true about the guy is he was kind of introverted. There was, he was multi-layered onion, this guy. Um, he, his greatest fear was that he would show cowardice in battle um he hated his jawline thought as weak and effeminate um he had a high-pitched squeaky voice that he hated which is why he practiced these like war faces that he would put on like the war face he would put on just to mask his high-pitched squeaky voice and um his his own insecurities right so um he was incredibly clumsy um but 
the guy just wouldn't give up. I mean, that was the only thing that I can find that was miraculous about this guy. Was I did I would have given up a hundred times ago. <laughs> right? Um, he he went to when he went to university, he didn't get into West Point initially like he wanted to. Um and he went to VMI instead, and then after his, then he transferred to West Point, and then he subsequently failed. So he, <laughs> he did his freshman year in college like three times. <laughs> so, you know? so it, uh, do you just watch all the Patton movies and all this stuff and be like, this is just inaccurate, not, not correct? No, I don't, because you know I still appreciate the function that memory it's serves. The function of memory, right? The- and so it's like. Yeah, I can sit back objectively and say this is not who Patton was, but I can still appreciate that this is exactly how he would have wanted us to remember him, right? Um, And I can also understand why the creators of this product at the time they made it needed this image, right? So it's like I can understand that um, for what it was. Right. It doesn't mean it's what it is or but that's just what they needed it to be at that time. But I think during even even today's time, that's such an interesting tool to have in your tool belt to be able to look at things objectively and say, this is what actually happened. But I can see I can see I can perceive it of why it is the, the way that people are viewing it, at least. Well, you know, that's how I conceptualize understanding, you know, I mean, um, there's always, I, I always, my, my, my wife will tell you, I always, um, one of my mantras is the truth is always in the middle somewhere, you know? And so it's like, we all have our perspectives, but without data, you're just another guy with an opinion, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Sure. And so, um, I can, you know, prophesize all day long, but you know, the hard part with studies like these are, trying to prove it somehow empirically and so like one of the things i did was look at this fan mail i'm like dude these like and i added it up i tallied it right Pro how much pat- how much was there oh hundreds and hundreds hundreds at least four collinger boxes at the national at the library of congress just a fan mail right and it, there was a publication in the late 40s early 50s by one of his staff officers that discussed having to count out the the fan mail pro and con and he tallied it up and i just like i want to go double check this so i, <laughs> I went and i tallied it i'm like ah because i don't believe this it's crazy um but it was accurate i was like holy cow he wasn't lying and even more importantly Patton didn't throw away the con letters because he would get letters like you're you're a hole and you shouldn't slap soldiers because you know, there was those two incidences in Sicily where he slapped those two soldiers, right? And so, like, he got a lot of flag for that, right? Got fired, in fact. But um, he kept it, all of it. You know, it's like, if I was trying, if I was a, if I was really a narcissist trying to frame the future perspectives of my story, would I leave damaging evidence for future historians to write about? Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's not what a narcissist would do. So like I think that he's unfairly treated by a lot of non-patent fans um for being this egotist, you know. It's like, no, he was playing a part because if you look at who he really was, you know, kind of timid, shy, introvert, very cerebral, 
but he was probably the army's household scholar for his time. Um, well-read, um, very innovative and not scared to take risks and chances. Right. But, um, he was a strict disciplinarian as well. And so people couldn't manage to get past the strict disciplinarian aspect of his personality and get to the, he's actually really kind of a nice guy. Who's really smart, <laughs> you know, um, they, they just couldn't get past that. But, um, you know, he, he played the part for his soldiers. He, you know, he was the Martinet, you know, he was the flashy guy. I, he always used like, for instance, he always used football analogies when he was giving pep talks to yep. his soldiers, right? Well, he was like third string at West Point on, on the football <laughs> team, right? Never played a game. He was like the practice squad, you know, wanted to be a football player, was too clumsy to do it, right? But he was a world-class fencer and steeple, steeplechase rider. Um, he was the first American to be sent to the modern pentathlon in the 1912 Olympics, you know? Um, so like he never like bragged about what he was actually good about in these speeches. He would, if you look at it, he would actually talk to the soldiers at their level. So that's why they're just laced with curse words and, and all this stuff. And so people think, oh, Patton was coarse and crass. I'm like, no, he was just trying to speak the soldier's language. That was all, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I would think when you're the general or your captain, you, you, your job is to get the maximum response from your troops and be able to get you have to have that charisma or that, you know, because it's so funny the way you describe him. It's like that this was the guy because when I was reading, it was like he personified the offensive spirit, the ruthless drive, the victory for battle. Yeah. This he, stuff well, he did all, Yeah, he did all that, too. Right. But that's not all he was. It's not and all so, it was. It was put on, yeah. on like that persona almost. Right. And so, you know, they, the reductionists, if you're a reductionist and just try to reduce him to like, oh, he was our, he was the biggest badass in the war. Woo. And I'm like, well, yeah, he was that, but he was so much more, you know? Um, and that's why he's a hero to a lot of people. Um, and as, as we move forward into the future, have if having heroes is necessary and inescapable fact of human life the one thing that we constantly do is reinterpret the meaning of our heroes right and so um what i'm trying to do is you know um you know this might not be the height of the cold war anymore we don't need to have like a national military hero figure but um, you know, people like Patton still have things that um, we can learn from, you know, they still their story still has something to tell us. Um, and we shouldn't. So just cavalierly throw that away, because very often our survival depends on it. Absolutely. And we, we got me. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like uh, I'm in, immersed with the hero's journey and the and but, for, but in today's day and age, it seems that the younger kids or my generation, we're gravitating towards nonfiction, towards the yeah, Marvel, yeah. towards uh, yeah, yeah. this whole thing. And that's you know, the reason the superheroes exploded. What do you think yeah. is because is, like what I get there is like 50 years from now, we're not going to be looking back like who's our pat? Like if we look in 50 years from the future, is there going to be 
a changing of the guard of, of we're looking back to because I feel like in the in the forties, fifties during World War II, everybody was I was I'm sure people had real life heroes to, to look at. And yeah. I'm I'm I feel bad in myself. I'm like, all I want to do is see Luke Skywalker and you know Ahsoka show and watch some Captain America. Like this this wacky stuff. Is there something to be said about the, yeah, the, yeah. the fiction side of this? Yeah, I think so. Um I can't I, I can only speak to it in a slightly indirectly though. Um I, I could talk to some of the literature behind it, um, but the field, the actual original field research that I've done on this very topic um, indicates that there is something that I call the transformative hero model. Mm. Um, and basically it relies upon the presupposition that human beings are modelers of behavior right so this kind of leans on the evolutionary biology right the way that human beings learn is by watching other human beings and modeling those behaviors okay and so um you in some and in most instances you're actually modeling how to walk or how to crawl or you know you're watching something else and seeing it modeling it, and that's how you learn right um, in other ways, you're like mirroring or modeling the essence of something, right? So it's not like if a little little boy is playing um, mommy, you know, which I have a little boy, he's, you know, he's um, trying to discover what it means to be mom. And so um, he's going through this, he's three years old, you know, he's going through this process where he's like playing mommy, right? I'm like, cool. He's just discovering what this concept means but he's modeling an essence right he's not just walking behind doing exactly everything as his mom's doing he's kind of gets the gist of it mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> right and so um you know if you've ever had kids you you can kind of see that in their behavior right so just observationally that makes sense and the literature kind of backs all that up too um so if you assume that we're all modelers, the f the people that we first encounter in our lives are usually family, close friends, right? So when we're kids are usually our, um, the first people that we're modeling ourselves after is our, those people, right? And as we like, develop imaginations, um, you know, that takes us into the world of fantasy and kids, their heroes are, um fantastical figures um mostly because that's what they're exposed to right um the cartoons the books the blah blah etc 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 um but you know as you as you like grow into adulthood you start to recognize that there are other people who demonstrate attributes and characteristics that you value mm -hmm. um and you kind of cherry pick and take from those as you go along um if you get into an organization that has institutional heroes like the army, right? You have an institutional heroes like George Washington and George Patton, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like then you can use these, you can purposefully use these, this framework of hero veneration to assimilate or acculturate new members into your culture. Right. It's like these are the characteristics that we value in this organization. Here are some people that demonstrated it. It'll be easier for you to grasp onto that concept if I give you a 
example of an actual human being who did this because that's how we evolved to learn because we're modelers of human behaviors, right? We have to tat, we have to humanize this somehow. Um, and so, you know, you could, so I would say that to your question, I think that it's either, it's, it's probably a matter of like this process, this framework hasn't changed much in the last 10 years or so. Um, but the, you know, the kids, where they are in that kind of evolution from the inward out um, haven't been exposed to other heroic figures quite yet. And mm-hmm. it's, it's probably just a, pro, a, a matter of marketing, you know, so I mean, this kind of, it's funny you asked this because this was like my next, the, my, my next great idea. <laughs> right. Um, so one of the things that I know is, or I've read in the in the um, education literature is that um, there's a problem with literacy rates amongst boys right now. And I walked into a Barnes and Noble a few days ago, and um, this is one of the was one of the instances where I didn't tell the truth, <laughs> but there was a, a purpose for it. Um, I told her I had a a 12 year old nephew who was into like books about like heroic figures, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, do you have anything like that here? The answer is no. So it's not that like, it's not that boys necessarily don't want to read is they don't want to, they don't want to read the crap that they're made to read (laughs) or they have available to them to read, you know, a lot of these books, I've got a bookshelf full of, patent books over here i would say that probably a third of them and there's probably 300 books on the shelf over there um were written for like adolescent boys you know like they were like dime store novels written for adolescent boys you know they just consumed this with relish um and there's nothing like that for boys today you know and i'm like why not why not tell the young men in our society about some of their like national military heroic figures, you know, in a package that's modern and they can understand and is relevant to them, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's always a niche there's always a, a need that needs to be fit. Yeah, no. And this is, I, I you're like the jumping off guy to get me into history now because I'm sick of like being obsessed with these because uh, I, I I'm the only nonfiction reader in my family. I, I I really read a lot of nonfiction. My family's like, what's wrong with you? We got to read this. I'm like, listen, I yeah. I enjoy understanding the 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 basis of theorizing about the hero mythology in the sense of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I always think about and you would probably you'd probably think about this like the myth the the Greek myths when when the Greeks were growing mm-hmm. up like what is our myth of today? Uh, Tolkien made Lord of the Rings so it would be the, kind of the, the mythology of of England, and I don't want the mythology of America to be like fucking captain america i love these guys but like this shouldn't be it and i understand myths are expressions of the imagination shaped by the uh archetypical dynamics of the psych and this is the way that it's manifesting like how you said probably people saw some money there was some comics about it because i'm more pissed like in high school i played football to be the cool guy and i wanted to read some comics i didn't read i pushed that shit to my and now it's cool it's like what the fuck everybody's in on it it's just interesting how the inner psychological really manifests itself outside in society depending on what's going on in the time that right. you know i think people like you know people need heroes more now than ever and it's easy to 
coat yourself, if, especially if you're illiterate or not sure with social media and take something, an Andrew Tate or one of these nut jobs that, you know, yeah. just talk about some bullshit. Well, one of the things that I've found in the research that I've done is that this is no surprise is that younger people today have a heightened sense of skepticism against mm. institutions of authority, right? And so if you purposefully um, hide or wash over some of the um, warts <laughs> that all these stories carry, um, then they're going to trust those domineering narratives even less right and so I, I think that a lot of these these kids might actually be more willing to suspend all disbelief and watch a superhero movie mm. than they would be to just suspend some belief and watch like a like a cool action-packed history documentary geared towards kids because that, you know, it's like, uh, tell me the whole truth. If you're not going to tell me the whole truth and just make the whole shit up, I don't care, you know? Uh, so, you know, there might be, there might be an instance of, of that going on. Um, but here's, here's one of the things that, one of the things that I know too, to be true is that a lot of these figures stories are so outlandish. Like you can't make it up if you tried. <laughs> right. It's so it's like, dude, if you just aren't scared about, trusting younger people to discern the good parts of the story versus the bad parts of the story. And all you're going to try to do is just give this totally whitewashed version of the past. Then like, you're not doing anybody any favors, <laughs> you know? So, but I'm like, that just kind of enriches the story, right? I mean, the hero's tale is you face adversity, you make mistakes, you fail along the way, you keep trying, you overcome, then you go back to your civilization and learn with the villagers there what you learned on your journey, right? That's the most important part, though, of the hero's journey. And like people who think they know about, you know, the the model, they forget that whole part. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, the whole thing. Hey, come back. You're, <laughs> you got to come back. You got to share. Like, why are we sharing what we learned along the hero's journey? Because remembering our stories from the past is important. It's part of the hero's journey monomyth, right? That's the whole point. Nate, you you just rocked it, man. Um, <laughs> dude, I'm I'm cutting it there because Jerry Seinfeld leave on a high note. Um, dude, I love this conversation. Uh, when is the book coming out? Um, I don't know. It's um, it's gonna go before the editorial board this month, but um, I'm I have a pretty warm fuzzy about it. So you know, we'll see. Uh, maybe later this year. Cool, dude. Well, just yeah, you know, but I'll, let, I'll let, definitely let, message you and let you know. Yeah, when that come on again, bro. Please, this was this was awesome. Um, thank you so much, uh, Nate, for, for your for your time, and I'll put all the links below if you guys want to reach out to him and check out his work. Uh, that's it, people. As always, stay safe, stay positive, stay blessed. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Right.